everyone, and welcome to another ISACA podcast. My name is Chris McGowan. I'm the Principal Information Lead here at ISACA. Joining me today is Rex Johnson and Hamlet Cotaverdian. Uh, they co-authored an article titled Improving Cyber Resilience in the Age of Continuous Attacks. Rex, Hamlet, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Chris. Uh, so before we dive into the article itself, uh, I was hoping um, you guys could just give our listeners a little background on yourself. My name is Rex Johnson. I'm the executive director and I lead the cybersecurity practice for CAI. I've uh, been doing this for, well, over 25 years now. Have the opportunity to help a number of uh, clients with uh, identifying ways to protect their data and information. Uh, got into this when I was asked uh, as an IT person to look at cybersecurity around 2000 and see if it had any teeth to it. So I've uh, been here ever since. Uh, cool. Thanks, Rex. Uh, so name is uh, Hamlet. Uh, first name, just like the play um, Shakespeare, last name, Quoteverdian. Uh, I am the, um, the vice president of the Americas for Elementrix. I'm also a co-founder of the company. Uh, Elementrix is basically a multi-vector, holistic, sort of hyper-converged XDR platform wrapped up with a managed service and MDR service around it. Uh, it's pretty extensive in the sort of the things that we cover. Uh, previous to this, I was a, a, a CTO and a CIO at multiple companies, um, you know, FinTech, things of that nature. I've managed large software engineering teams, building large software uh, projects, uh, risk teams where, you know, we're building underlying statistical underwriting algorithms to, you know, for loans, things of that nature. And then obviously security is, has always been wrapped up in a lot of that uh, and has always typically rolled up to me at some point. So about 20, 25 years of experience uh, in just sort of software engineering, tech, information technology, um, things of that nature. So Nice. Thank you. Uh, so I know, Rex, you're in Kansas City, right? That's correct. And uh, Hamlet, where do you reside at? Uh, I'm in uh, Orange County, California. Oh, is that anywhere near all the bad weather? Uh, it's very heavy rains here, but not like the crazy stuff that you see in, you know, the Central on Coast, Montecito, San Francisco. Yeah, oh, good, 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 good. Yeah, it's, it's heavy rain, but, you know, no one's car has gone, you know, sideways here. So. <laughs> uh, Rex, I see in your background that uh, were you previous military? Uh, yes, I am. I got into the military in the mid 80s uh, and uh, used it as a way to pay for college. Uh, wasn't planning to stay as long as I did. But uh, fortunately, uh, was able after my active duty tour to go in as a reservist. Uh, I retired in 2016 uh, after about uh, 32 years of uh, service and just really had the opportunity to uh, uh, serve my country and see a lot of things in a lot of places. It's been, it was a great experience when it traded for anything. And uh, at the same time, I'm glad to be done with it and uh, be focused on now one job uh, because I can tell you as a reservist, I, I felt like I was working too at one time and especially with uh, the way uh, things are in the world today. No, oh, thanks. Thank you for your service. Thank you. I can relate because I, I spent 22 years in the Navy and retired awesome. in 2018. Awesome. So I, I know what you mean by lots of jobs and, and everything else, but uh, the same with college and everything else, I wouldn't be here without it and get all the knowledge I have now, so. Well, thank you for your service. Uh, thank that's you. Awesome. Totally, Chris, thank you for your service. Hey, thanks. Uh, so your, your guys' co-authoring article, was it difficult to co-author an article? Or you guys worked together quite a bit, you mentioned, so. We, yeah, we, both companies work to quite, uh, sort of together quite a bit. Uh, we have different levels of expertise, different levels of services, uh, sort of combine those and help companies and organizations across 
basically the U.S. It doesn't really matter how big they are. Um, and so we've had that partnership for a while. And so co-authoring an article like this, you know, when we were asked for it, uh, it wasn't, you know, at least from my perspective, Rex, it wasn't that hard. You know, we, we know what we're both good at, really, really good at. And uh, combining that knowledge and creating something that I think is relevant for, uh, you know, organizations out there to read correctly. And it wasn't that hard, at least from my perspective. Yeah, I, I think reading the article, it's 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 very relevant because um, I don't think a lot of people have, you know, think like that or think like that. Well, they should, but and they think they do. But once you dive into it, you realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe, maybe I'm not doing everything I should be doing kind of thing. It, there's a lot to do. And so the article is easy to write because Hamlet and I have had a great working relationship for the last few years. The thing is, you know, I serve in more of an advisory role. I come in and I sit down and uh, help organizations figure out what they need to do. Uh, but cybersecurity is such a wide field. There's no way you can be the expert at everything. So when we look for solutions such as uh, a managed detection response uh, to protect the endpoints, you know, companies like Elementrics are, are, are who we're gonna bring in because they provide excellent service and they can prevent a lot of things from happening. You don't wanna to get to the point where you have a breach or if you do, you wanna find a way to be able to manage that well. And while there's no silver bullet, which the article talks about, uh, being able to have those layers of, uh, and know who to pull in as the expert, depending on where you are in the event of, uh, of a cyber incident, uh, that's helpful. And, and Hamlet has been really good at on the preventative side and being able to detect and contain things. And it's been a great ability to talk about what his organization can do to help other companies. Yeah, I think you touched on some of the talking points I was going to bring up when you mentioned Silver Bullet. A lot of companies out there or some companies, even some organizations I've worked for in the past, they thought, you know, I come in with a security background, but I might not have been filling a cybersecurity role. And I would ask that question. I was like, what kind of security you got? And they're like, oh, we got firewalls and passwords. And, you know, I'm like, there's no other layers of defense or other tools that you might use, tools as in, you know, SOC or, or some kind of continuous monitoring. I found that quite a few of the smaller businesses or even school districts, to be honest, uh, didn't really have any kind of layered protection. And that, that really surprised me. Do you see that out in uh, industry? Uh, we do. And, you know, the, I kind of go back to the old Disney movie Shrek when uh, he was telling uh, the donkey that, uh, uh, you know, ogres are like layers or like onions. They have layers. The same thing is with security, um, because uh, we are in a connected environment. Like, you know, we rely on the Internet and that connectivity all the time, especially during the pandemic. We saw that uh, even more so. Uh, but uh, there's several ways that things could be compromised. And some of the things uh, that you want to do have to think about all those tiers and all those layers. So it comes down to having an understanding of your environment uh, and knowing what assets to protect more, because uh, not all data is created equally, but also how are you going to shield that? How are you going to have uh, perimeter protection? How are you going to have detection uh, when uh, somebody does uh, come inside, what are you going to do after that happens? Uh, what kind of things are you going to do when a breach does happen? There's just so many layers of security that you have to consider about. Uh, you want to keep having those up so that uh, there's enough up there that just deters a threat actor uh, because they realize how hard it is to uh, to get to the uh, the data that and the information they're trying to get to. Yeah, you'd say probably the the path of least resistance is always what 
you know, an adversary would want to take, right? Well, it's like anything else. And we've worked a number of uh, breaches. And one of the things that I see is that uh, when a breach happens, the customer I'm working with wasn't the only one that this group targeted. If you've got groups that spin off the Conti group, such as Royal, they're going to go after a number of organizations. They're going to get a foothold there. They're going to dwell in the environment. They're going to try to enumerate. They're going to try to learn uh, about uh, what's going on before they plan their attack. But if they find out that things happen that have disrupted their foothold, they're going to move on to the next one. And they're going to do what's going to get them uh, the payout. Because cyber criminals are in this for the money. Uh, they're in this to, this is their job. Uh, they're very good at it, but they're going to go where they're going to get the most bang for their buck. And if they start hitting walls and it becomes more difficult, it's going to discourage them. They're going to abandon that particular client, so to speak, uh, or that target and go towards the next one. Yeah, I mean, this idea of sort of defense in depth, multiple layers, uh, everyone you know talks about this. I just don't know if companies understand how to do it correctly. You know, you look at all the major data breaches, you know, Otka, Cloudflare, Home Depot, Target, Capital One Bank, every single one of these, they had all the tools, they had the greatest, you know, we stopped data breaches, uh, we've, they've got the network sensors, uh, they've got the multi-million dollar socks, they've got the DLP solutions, uh, they've got, you know, a whitelisting capability, everything's there, right? And then suddenly you see an Uber, a single person gets spearfished at Uber, uh, and Uber just had their second data breach that you're well aware of. Uh, and this kid, a 17-year-old kid from the UK, just doing it for fun, he basically breached Uber, you know, within, you know, several hours, yeah, basically spammed a contractor, got access to multi-factor authentications, which they were using push authentication, uh, got into the network, scanned the network, found a, 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 a location where his passwords were stored in clear text, used that data to basically access all the critical systems, whether it's just AWS, Otka, everything. So, and we're talking about Uber here. They haven't, it's not like they've cut corners on cybersecurity. It's not like they've suddenly say, you know what, we're going to cut, you know, $10 million off the budget. This is the same scenario at, you know, all the large firms. So the question needs to be asked, right? Like, what is the point of all these solutions if they can't stop sort of data breaches? And so part of, I think, the thing that we were talking about in that article is that there is a little bit of too much trust being put in the technology itself. Uh, the technology itself is, is important, but it's not a silver bullet. No, there is no silver bullet. It has to be managed correctly. Uh, think of this scenario. You go and you want to buy something from Amazon for your kid's birthday party today. Uh, and you want to buy gifts, uh, going away gifts. And you look at the reviews and you can immediately tell that this is a fake review, right? You can say, oh, uh, that's a fake review. That's a fake review. That's a fake review. Because, you know, it, it might be a Chinese made product. And then they just, they say, hey, can you write a fake review? So Amazon today has a very difficult time. Amazon, at the scale of the size of Amazon, the scale of their engineering, the scale of how big they are, uh, the type of people they have there. They can't filter out fake product reviews. This is a problem they're having. And you're telling me that the cybersecurity vendor that you just listened to with a shiny box has AI who's going to catch a nation state actor with that, with that shiny box. This is where we are in the state of ML and AI. So ML AI is good for very, very specific black and white things that can easily tell. If it's a human generated thing, AI or ML has a very difficult time telling was it a human that did this. So just be weary of you know vendors sort of pushing what I would say silver bullet solutions. Oh, we would have caught that. Oh, we would have caught that. Uh, maybe unlikely. It would have most likely been a combination of the person, the security analyst, 
uh, in addition with that technology. And that's the key. The security analysts, uh, they have to be trained. It's got to be used. You can't just buy a piece of technology and hope that it's going to do magic and then let it be for a year. Uh, someone's got to manage that. Uh, you have to have the team. You have to have the expertise. So this is this is the, some, things, some of the things that we see that there is no silver bullets out there. Uh, and, and a lot of companies try to do this on their, on their own, which, you know, obviously we're a little biased. We think, you know, we think you should always have a partner helping you. Uh, that's sort of very specific focus on cybersecurity. Yeah, thank you. That was very insightful. And kind of frightening if you think about it. <laughs> how, many, <laughs> how many people use Amazon? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I've ordered things from Amazon that had very good marks. And I didn't even think about it. And I got it. And I was like, what? What yep. did I order? Yep. Well, you also got to think of the fact that how many times have you looked for something online and all of a sudden ads for that or similar products have popped up on your browser because everything on the Internet is traceable. That sort of information is available to threat actors and they're able to piece things together. So these phishing emails that you see are very well done. Um, they, they do their homework. And there's information out there that they could take a look at and even find ways to, to try to find your Achilles heel and, and, and best get in. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm working on a, a project in regards to that myself um, on another aspect of, of my job role. And uh, it's crazy to think about because I worked in a role previously, a red team role, where um, we had to you know, generate those phishing emails to send them out and things like that. And it was it was almost comical how easy you can get people to do things just by researching. At the time, it was MySpace, you know, uh, researching their likes and everything else. It was really, really easy. Mm -hmm. it's, 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 in fact, the same easiness as it is today. Um, you can have all this defense in depth. Our team can bypass that perimeter spam filter every single time. Every single time. All the perimeter spam filter is, is just a regular expression matching. It's very easy for us to create customized emails to bypass that. I don't think companies really understand that. I, I really don't. Like a lot, of, a lot of CISOs and CIOs have a lot of too much trust placed in the perimeter spam filter. Very easy. Every single time we can just get one more. We talked about right? one more tool that you you can't just trust in tools. You need more than that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So but it goes back to user training, right? Because, you know, you get a spam phishing email and everyone, no one wants to hear that word. Oh, don't tell me about user training. I talked to CISOs today and CIOs. Don't tell me about that. But at the end of the day, that's the weakest point. If I can fool your senior network engineer on clicking on something, I can get his username and password. Most likely he typed in his MFA uh, uh, credential and, I, and he's on a website that looks like, um, it looks like maybe an HR website that he's always accessed. And I, I just got his MFA credentials as well. I literally just switch over now to you know, Amazon's web services, admin stuff, and I'm, I'm, and I'm in. I'm in literally to the whole network. And it was that easy. There is nothing that you could have done to prevent that other than user training or, 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 limit, or limit VPN access or limit IP address listings. There are obviously there's other mitigating things that you could have done. Um, you know, I don't want to say, you can't, but I could have easily captured your credentials, your MFA. That's not that hard to do. You know, again, people have this concept of oh, MFA, MFA. It would have prevented most breaches. Sure, it would have. Uh, absolutely. It's, 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 it's absolutely required today, but it's not, again, another silver bullet we can bypass it. It's not that hard. It, it, it's a layer. And one of the things I want to say, so at, how many of us have been guilty that maybe we've been in meetings and we're clicking through emails and uh, we're not really paying attention to the meeting? Uh, human nature, uh, especially if you get as many emails uh, as maybe I do, I get a lot. And you know, you're trying to get through those. If you accidentally click on something because you're not fully focused, uh, 
you can let something in. That's another layer uh, yeah. of defense you have to think about. Yeah, so that's, I think that's, that, that's where the concept, you know, of sort of resiliency and sort of defense in depth comes in. Resiliency, so, okay, a mistake. So if you look at the Uber data breach, a single spear phishing email resulted in the entire enterprise being breached. So you cannot blame that individual <laughs> that clicked on something. This is a failure of systems. This is a failure of defense and depth. This is a failure of resiliency. This is a failure of the CIO and the CISO not doing things correctly. This is not a failure of that single individual clicking on a single link and resu resulting in an entire enterprise. Uh, be, you know that, that should never happen. A single email resulting in your entire enterprise being, being uh, breached. This is not his or her fault. This is the, this is the top level's fault. This is a CIO, C, C, you know, VP of tech. You didn't think about all the uh, sort of the layers correctly, or you have too much trust in tech, um, or you don't have the right people, um, et cetera. So that's at least, at least personally my opinion. No, I agree with you. I, I read numerous articles and, and stuff about that breach, and I was, I was quite shocked, to be honest. But to jump back just a little bit, Rex, I believe you said something earlier about um, cybercrime and, you know, what, what, what cyber criminals want, and, you know, obviously money, right? But the term hacktivism. Can, right. Can we talk about that for a second, what it is and what it means? Certainly. So uh, you might have heard the term hacktivism or hacktivist. Uh, it's a combination of two words, uh, hacker and activism. Uh, so you've got someone uh, where, a, while you can't argue a hacktivist is a cyber criminal, I'm going to use cyber criminal in the mode of someone who's doing this for monetary gain. They're part of an organization or they're an individual that's doing this to, to make money. A hacktivist is someone who is doing this to achieve either a political or a social outcome. Now, they're going to use the same tactics uh, that the hackers are going to use, but they're not necessarily motivated monetarily. Uh, and, and we see a rise in that. So if you think about what's going on right now over on the other side of the world, you've got the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, there are people that have very strong opinions either way uh, in the world. And there are a lot of hacktivists that are out there uh, doing things to try to help the other side or to get support from people uh, uh, on whatever side they're trying to do. That's an example of hacktivist uh, or hacktivism. You could even consider the group Anonymous uh, as more of a hacktivist group than, uh, than a criminal organization. Uh, they were more of a Robin Hood mentality. They would still, but they would typically give to charities, which of course is still a crime, uh, but their motivation was not so much financial gain for themselves. Uh, so we see that rising a lot, especially during certain elections that may happen worldwide, certain global events, as we just discussed between uh, Russia and Ukraine uh, and other matters that are out there. Uh, so uh, it's gone up. It's been something that has been uh, pretty much a small amount of activity. Uh, it used to be about one and a half percent of all uh, breaches and incidents. It's now risen as high as six percent uh, on average uh, based on what may be going on around the world. Yeah, it's funny. It, every, every morning, uh, I take my kids to the bus stop, and there's a large group of moms, because I'm the only uh, guy there, and they asked me this morning, and it was just coincidental, because um, they always ask me what I do, and I was like, well, I have a podcast today, and it's about this, and they're like, oh, is that because of, uh, of what happened with the airlines yesterday? And I was like, <laughs> not exactly, no. Well, well, was it, did Russia hack us? And, oh, yeah. and I'm like, it's just, you know, news mentions one small thing and then and then people run with it. So I'm like, 
I thought it was a little humorous this morning. I was like, no, that's not really what my podcast is about. But yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, that does. You know, that does happen. I, I get the same thing. You know, whenever I I, I go to uh, go out uh, and somebody asks me what I do, they they're all of a sudden. Uh, I get hit with a lot of questions and does it have anything to do with that? And what was your thought on this? And uh, there's a lot of activity. It's because we're, we're connected and we rely on information in the internet. Uh, so it is a, a playground for cyber threat actors, whether they're cyber criminals, uh, hacktivists, uh, whether they're trying to start a misinformation campaign or even uh, one other area is cyber espionage, uh, where uh, some countries or organizations are trying to get secrets uh, so they can better their products. Yeah, some of the things I think like organizations should think about is, you know, what, what is the worst thing that can happen to us as an organization from a technology cybersecurity perspective? And, you know, when I was um, a previous, couple of previous roles to this, I was a VP at an insurance company uh, for home homes. They would underwrite uh, home insurance. They were the actual underwriter. So you've, you've got, you know, uh, 200, 300, 400,000 policies spread out across six states, seven states. Um, and so what could, what is the worst thing that could happen to an insurance company? Well, if, if you know, 40% of your policies are sitting in Southern California and there's a 9.0 earthquake, um, you could have a significant hit to your financial statements. Uh, so, and then, and then what do you have to do? How do you recover from that? Well, you got to obviously pay all these folks. So you got to go through these very um, dire scenarios as a company, you know, and so, and it goes kind of, kind of goes, goes back to a little bit of threat modeling. You know, if you're making widgets for Raytheon uh, and those widgets go into an F-35, the threat model that you probably are dealing with is uh, an organization or an APT group that's probably trying to get access to the intellectual property. Um, and that's what they're trying to get access to. If you're a standard financial organization, you're doing standard loans, there's no real intellectual property there. You're just doing loans, underwriting. So your financial threat model or your threat model is really someone that wants to do ransomware against you right away and get paid very quickly. And so those are different threat models or sort of different threat actors. Um, you know, the Russians are very big on the ransomware stuff. They just want to hit very quick get paid very, very, very quickly. The, the whole thing is a business. And then you've got, you know, other other types of APTs that are after the intellectual property, uh, which, you know, they don't want the money. They, they want the actual intellectual property you've been working on for, you know, last decade or the last 20 years. So uh, it's just something to think about from a from an organizational perspective. You know, what is your threat model, really? Yeah, and to, to kind of add on to that, um, you know, once you have, you understand your threat model or whatever, I mean, you need to, uh, I don't, I don't know the right term to use, but, you know, you want to test that you're prepared for it. Um, like instant response, per se. You, you want to practice like you, you play, right? You want to you make sure that you have um, plans in place, procedures, models, frameworks, whatever it may be, and then, and then test against those to make sure that you're actually doing what, what you set out to do in the first place. And I think that's a very good point to bring up when you talk about incident response plans. And if I could take a step back, that plan needs to be developed based on that threat model. And so, as we talked about in the article, understanding your environment is important because not all data is created equal. Uh, you know, you have, a, a, you know, I've, I've been in doing this a long time and I remember one large organization, I'm not going to mention their name because everybody knows who they are, but I remember a pen test that we did and they found there was one of their sites that had easy guessable passwords. And 
this showed up as a critical vulnerability and everybody was up in arms. And when we took a look at what that system was for, it was an online system for children's games, for children who were under the age of six years old. So easy guessable passwords so they could continue to play their character uh, is something you're gonna have. And you also found that particular part of the network and their environment had nothing to do with their operations, their financials. So, uh, you know, uh, a critical uh, vulnerability based on the CVE is not gonna be a real critical vulnerability to that. So that's not part of the threat model. But you take a look at things where there's uh, data and financial information or intellectual property. That's the important part. And that's where it's important to understand uh, your environment, to, to classify those assets are based on data classification, the priority of data. Then on that, you build your incident response plan because if you break, and I like Hamlet uses an example is that if somebody breaks into his house, uh, he's not gonna care that they decided to grab, you know, the, uh, you know, you know, a couple cups and glasses or that, or if they, they walked away with something like that, he's gonna hide his most valuable jewelry or things that he has in a safe that's gonna be harder to get to. And the same thing comes around when you put together your, uh, you look at that threat model and you design your plan, you wanna protect the information that's in that safe. You wanna protect the information that's important to you. Yeah, and then, and then you know, if you go back to, and you know, a, lot of, a lot of companies are talking about this, um, you know, if the worst thing does happen, you know, uh, whatever that worst thing is, how quickly can we recover from that? How resilient are we as an organization? How, you know, how are the backups? Do you have immutable backups? What, what is the dollar per minute, dollar per hour uh, that, you know, a downtime costs you as a company and, you know, uh, and, and can you recover and, you know, are you resilient? And, and that resiliency, everyone talks about this resiliency, but it's really all that means is like you have good backups. <laughs> so, you know, are the backups immutable, which means that they cannot be um, encrypted effectively uh, and they're very fairly available, meaning, you know, it doesn't take you three months to restore the data. Uh, because if it takes you three months to restore the data, you might as well just pay the ransom at that point, uh, you know, because it might there might be a cost benefit analysis uh, there. Uh, so that resiliency and building that resiliency, and um, you know, it's really about do you have good backups? Are they tested? You know, uh, are they available very easily? How long does it take to restore that data, uh, et cetera, et cetera? So, and, and that's a very good point. I mean, you talk about how you can get back up, uh, and you were mentioning uh, the incident response plan. Well, the incident response plan needs to have some common things about it, but it needs to have playbooks uh, in it as well or scenarios. So I think we all remember in high school and uh, growing up, we used to have fire drills. And what would they do during the fire drill? Everybody had to get out of the building because there was a fire. So you would practice very quickly going out and doing that. Well, I grew up in Kansas and not only did we have fire drills, we had tornado drills. And I can tell you during a tornado, you don't want to go outside. <laughs> you want to get to a point of the building where you're away from glass, you're away from windows and doors, and you want to get to a place where you can hunker down and be safe so that nothing's going to hit you. Your response to that threat is different than a fire. The same thing that happens uh, to an organization if they're hit with a ransomware threat, if they're hit with another type of denial of service, if they're hit with uh, some other, uh, maybe even a, a, a physical presence or something like that, or if they're hit with, uh, you know, uh, different types of things uh, uh, that are going on, a social engineering campaign or something, based on what happens to them, they need to have a response to uh, 
to each of those uh, things. As Hamlet talked about earlier, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Uh, for some organizations, it's money could be taken. It, intellectual property could be taken. I have a number of clients that I said to them, what would happen if your business was offline for 24 hours? How much money would you lose? Being off a line is a, is a bigger threat than you know data exfiltration to them, depending on who they are. And having those uh, scenarios to play out and to rehearse and to practice is, is what they need to do. Not so much that they stop it, but they mitigate the impact and reduce the amount of time it takes to get back up and operational. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things most companies these days can lose over finances is just the trust, trust factor, because how are you going to make lots of money if no one trusts, you, you know, how you handle business? That's a, it's a really great point, Chris, uh, you know, like really great point, because people assume like, oh, I've got I've got cybersecurity insurance. Well, cybersecurity insurance does not return your data. Cybersecurity insurance does not randomly fix your you know, your, your online status of, hey, you just got breached uh, and, and your reputation. It doesn't it doesn't you know fix your reputation. Cybersecurity insurance, all it does is help you in the cleanup process. That's all it's doing. So people have this sort of misconception. You know, we've got cybersecurity insurance and we're good. Yeah, you're good. It'll help you in the cleanup process and all that stuff. But they, they're not going to return your data. Your reputation's shot. There's all kinds of other things that are occurring there that cybersecurity insurance doesn't um, affect. And, and if you look at like the Nortel data breach, uh, this goes back a long way. Nortel was a, a, a telecom company based out of Canada. So threat actors, most likely Chinese, were in the Nortel network well, well over 15 years. Uh, and I don't know if you guys know about Nortel, but over the last uh, that period of time, they started losing market share. Uh, brand new competitors started popping up in China, producing the same amount of equipment, uh, same, and obviously at a cheaper price. And so over basically a 10-year, 10, 10 10-12-year 10, period, um, Nortel went out of business. And all of their intellectual property got sold to a conglomerate of like Microsoft and you know some other companies. Um, but there are people that have done a deep dive on that and said there is a high likelihood that the fact that the threat actors were in there, a lot of the intellectual, intellectual property was was eventually stolen and rebuilt uh, by other you know uh, companies uh, in you know foreign countries, and then uh, basically market share uh, was taken away from them. Uh, chipped away, literally chipped away at, and eventually over time they they were basically uh, their products were, didn't you know were, were not competitive price wise. You can buy cheaper stuff somewhere else, but a lot of it was based on cybersecurity, like just basically like really bad cybersecurity, and, and their and their data was basically stolen. Their intellectual property was stolen, um, so it's something that people forget about. Uh, so that can happen. Uh, so it, it, cybersecurity insurance is not going to fix that. You know when your intellectual property gets stolen. You're you're kind of done, you know. No one's replacing that, you know. So that and now you've got a competitor that has something, you know. Imagine like Siemens that works, you know, twenty years to develop an MRI machine, and suddenly intellectual property gets stolen overnight. Well, Rex Hamlet, we're about out of time. Um, I truly want to thank you for your time. I know you were two busy gentlemen, and uh, I think we had some really good uh, conversation. So I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot for having us. Yep. Thank you. I, I'd like to add one more. Thank you. Sure. Very end. Uh, obviously, we just saw the national championship game, the college, you know, with Georgia and TCU, and obviously TCU uh, had a great season. Not taking anything away from them, uh, but there was something that Kirby Smart said at the very end after they won that, and he goes, he basically said, you know, uh, programs like ours 
will continue to do well as long as a sense of entitlement doesn't creep into the program. And so when you read that, then it's easy to apply to a football team, but that sense of entitlement can easily be don't underestimate the opponent. Never underestimate, never trust the technology as much as you think. And I thought oh, that was just sort of a little nexus that I wanted to connect to that because I'm a big college football fan uh, and, and I appreciate it. I'm not a Georgia fan, but uh, I do appreciate, uh, you know, uh, something that Kirby said. So there you go. Thanks, Hamlet. Yeah. Okay, everyone, thanks for joining us today. If you're interested, and I highly suggest you are, in uh, reading the full article, you'll find a link for it in the description of this podcast. Uh, but for now, Chris McGowan signing out, and I'll see you next time.